Well, as we come to the word of God, let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, please would you speak now as we look at your word. Would you teach us from your scriptures about what it means to be engaging with a world like Corinth and like Ephesus as we think about Sydney and the Illawarra and Jamboree. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week's sermon may have left you feeling a little down about the sorry state of Aussie Christianity. Uh, Even though half of our population identify as Christian, it's on the decline and it means less and less in terms of our significance of who we are. Most people don't want us to talk about religion. And according to the survey I mentioned last week, only three out of 20 Aussies actually think that more religion would be a good idea for our nation. Well, it turns out that Jesus wasn't a big fan of religion either, especially the type that tries to manipulate God by our works and our worship. So in a sense, it is true that religion isn't the answer, but Jesus is the answer. And this is the truth that we need to share, whether people don't really want us to talk about it or not. But it seems harder and harder to be a Christian in this nation. It's now two years since the postal survey on same-sex marriage. And that was a bit of a bellwether moment for Christians. But however you analyse it, it's certainly true that we are less Christian today than we were as a decade ago, and especially a century ago. But we know that it is vital that more people know Jesus. It is vital that more people know Jesus, which is hard when our nation seems more pagan than ever. But imagine what it must have been like if you were the Apostle Paul in the first century. This was a truly non-Christian world because, well, the gospel was only fresh news. It hadn't really got out there to the ends of the earth just yet. And as Paul travels to these distant cities, he encounters a whole lot of different challenges. Last week he was in Athens, which was at the time an intellectual hub of civilization, uh, kind of like one big university. Well, certainly the arts faculty, I think. Lots and lots of talk. And as we read last week in Acts chapter 17, Paul approached Athens in anguish. And through his anguish yet, he was able to share about the unknown God that they left there to hedge their bets, that this unknown God actually was Jesus. In his distress, Paul told the Athenians about Jesus. He said that this God is the true God, the creator, and he's close to them if they want him. And if they repent and believe, then they will avoid judgment. And the good news was lots of people agreed and many people came to know Jesus through that. But today we read about two very different cities that he will visit. So he's he's visited Athens. Today he's going to read, he's going to visit firstly the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth is very sexually immoral. Uh, so much so that there was a word that sounded a bit like Corinthianize, which meant to practice immorality. Or there was a noun that sounded a bit like Corinthianite, which meant a prostitute. So the very city's name came to be synonymous with sexual immorality. That's how immoral it was. Now, when I think of Corinth, I think of Sydney, to be honest. Sydney prides itself on sexual immorality, hosting the world's, quote, most joyous and spectacular celebration of LGBTQI pride, the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. 
How will Paul minister there? Well, he'll spend two years there, and we'll hear about that in a moment. But he spent another three years somewhere else after that, which will form the second half of the passage today, and that's in Ephesus. Ephesus is a it's spiritual, a little bit like the New Age movement. They are fully into spiritual stuff. They've got the Temple of Artemis, or Diana as it's also known. And it would it's kind of like one big, massive mind-body-spirit festival. Imagine an entire city that was devoted to this kind of spirituality. Paul's going to be there for three years, and we'll see what he does there and how God works through him in that very super-spiritual place. And I think that as we see how he relates to Corinth and to Ephesus, we will see how we should relate to Sydney in Australia. And we'll also see why it is that we should keep going even when it seems hard. Well, it begins with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18. Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They'd left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Uh, Paul here meets Aquila and Priscilla, who he goes to live in with them for a while. Aquila and Priscilla are a key couple, a key Christian couple in the Bible, and they'd been kicked out of Rome when all the Jews and the Jewish Christians were sent out of there because of the persecution. And so Paul then is in Corinth. What is he going to do? Well, what's his strategy? First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Okay, that's what he does. Verse 4, each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike in the synagogue. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, he spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. It's just what he does over and over again. And what did the Jews do in the synagogue? They didn't like it. Yet again, verse 6, But when they opposed and insulted him... Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will preach to the Gentiles. I've done my duty with the Jews, and now I leave. And so he goes and focuses his energy on preaching in someone's home, which happened to be right next to the synagogue. It's kind of cool. And who's the first convert in that Gentile home? Verse 18, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptised. I reckon you put Crispus in the too hard basket. I mean, he's the guy running the synagogue, right? The synagogue that spews Paul out of the synagogue because of his teaching, and yet Crispus leaves the synagogue and he goes next door and he becomes a Christian. Uh, It's a fresh little reminder that there's nobody in the too hard basket. You might think that there's someone around who you just could never imagine them being a follower of Jesus. Well, you'd put Crispus in that category, wouldn't you? Some of us in this room may well have been in that category. But praise God that he transforms us by the gospel, even those in the too hard basket. But still, you've got to realise it would have been hard for Paul at that point. He is telling such a sexually immoral city that they need to turn away from that and turn to Jesus. And they're going to cop it because of that. 
When Christians say anything, when we raise our heads above the parapet in Sydney and Illawarra in Australia, we get shot at. Paul was probably copying a whole lot. Even even though he's bold and even though he's energetic, we actually see a Paul that is scared here. And as he's in this low, he receives a special message from none other than Jesus. Verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. Jesus comforted Paul in a dream. It's a wonderful act of Jesus. And he uses the same words that he said to the disciples when they were there in the boat in the storm and they were terrified. He says, do not be afraid. It's the same Jesus, the same fear. And there are three good reasons why Jesus' words to say don't be worried actually have currency. Verse 10, For I am with you and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. Firstly, Jesus is with him. He's not alone. He's not out there on his own. Secondly, Jesus says, You'll be fine. No one's going to attack you and beat you up like happens everywhere else. But thirdly, he says, There are many people in Corinth who belong to me. I've got my men and women and children in there and you need to get out there and tell them, so get into it. It's a lovely word of of confidence there, of comfort. Many people in Corinth belong to Jesus. One day they will call Jesus their Lord and all that needs to happen is they need to hear it. Jesus is Lord. Ah, I'm in. He's been given this comfort And so we see, verse 11, that Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. It was no fly-in, fly-out situation. He went the distance teaching the word of God to the people that belonged to Jesus, even if they didn't quite know it yet. When I was studying to be a minister at Moore College, I went out a few times to do some stranger evangelism. And even though I was a trainee minister, I, I still found it scary Now, even as a minister who's been around the block a few times, I still find it scary, to be honest. But the guy I was with said to me, Remember, Jody, God is drawing the elect to himself. What does he mean by that? Well, he's kind of saying the same sort of thing as Jesus. He says, Jesus' people are out there and they need to hear from us that Jesus is Lord. Jesus has chosen people before the creation of the world to be adopted as his children, and so we've got to get out there and let them know about Jesus. It was really encouraging, even as I shook him my boots. But we need to know that it is the powerful word of God that makes the difference. And that is why Paul kept preaching that. That's how Jesus worked in Corinth, by teaching the word of God. And it's how Jesus works in Jamboree, by teaching the word of God. Jesus works as we speak the word of God. You might think that that's a foolish way to work in this world. Surely Jesus could do more spectacular things than that. But at its heart, it's the word of God that does the work. Verse 18, this is, sorry, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth a bit later on, and he says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. That's what the word is. That's why we are word of God people, because it's the power. And we get this little word of autobiography in Paul's same letter. 
the first letter to the church at Corinth. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. He was afraid, wasn't he? And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Whatever our strategy, it's got to be about the Word of God, because the Word of God is the power of God. And it's the power of God for salvation. Well, before long, Paul's dragged by some Jews to the local governor. And verse 13, we read that they accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. So the Jews took them to the secular authorities, and the secular authorities, well, they didn't like what the Jews did. We read in verse 14, But just as Paul started to make his case, Galileo turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this was a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I'd have a reason to accept your case. But since it's merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtyard, out of the, the courtroom. This is not just another routine case of persecution in Acts. It's significant because here we see that the governor declares that Christianity is legal. The secular authority says that Christianity is a legal religion. And that's pretty important when it comes down the track in the book of Acts in coming weeks. Anyway, verse 18 because of that and other things, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, and then he said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Chentria. And there he shaved his head, according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. And then he set for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. Huh? You don't regularly see me shaving my head for a vow. Uh, most of you don't either, I think. Uh, so... It's kind of a weird thing that's happening right here. What is happening? It seems likely that Paul is continuing on a Jewish sort of tradition of sorts, even though it's very clear that Jewish traditions won't save you. He did it perhaps knowing that it was going to warm the, the, the reception that he would have with the Jews as he went to the synagogue. Who knows? But off he went. He went to Syria, dropped into Ephesus on the way. Is this where he's going to stay as he goes to the church at Ephesus or that will become the church in Ephesus? Well, we read 20 that he, they asked him to stay longer, but he declined. And as he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. And then he set sail for Ephesus. So he set a set sail from Ephesus to go off and do the next Area he, he goes, in fact, down to Jerusalem, all the way down there, and then back up to Antioch again and comes back to Ephesus. We don't hear much about the story. We don't need to. But now he's back in Ephesus again. Ephesus is the home of New Age spirituality, and there he meets someone called Apollos. Apollos is a pretty key person in the early church, and he's from Egypt. He's an Egyptian, and he was very enthusiastic and bold in his preaching about Jesus. He had lots to say about Jesus. But Priscilla and Aquila, 
this power couple who were the hosts of Paul when he was in Corinth, keen Christians, they heard what Apollos was saying and they were a little bit worried about it. And we read in verse 26 that they privately took him aside and corrected his teaching. You see, Priscilla and Aquila corrected the theology of Apollos. Now, we don't, we're a bit edgy about correcting others. It's like, well, what do you know, sort of thing. And I think it would have been easier for Priscilla and Aquila to just keep the peace and say, well, let Apollos have his own little version of, of Jesus stuff. It might be healthy to have a bit of diversity. It's not a bad thing that different people say different things and different perspective. No, not at all. The message of Jesus is an historical truth. The things that happened about Jesus either did or did not happen, and it's in history. And what's more, the things that he said matter for eternity. It was critical that Apollos had his teachings corrected. And Priscilla and Aquila did that lovingly and privately. And they got got Apollos to be preaching the right thing. We need to be prepared to do that. Our own Anglican Archbishop was under fire a month or so ago for attacking the teachings of other bishops. He said, why don't you leave the church if you're going to change it so much from the Bible? And he got attacked for that. I say similar little things here in our own little local church. And it's because the shepherds need to speak the truth. Otherwise, the sheep are at risk. And it's just so good that Priscilla and Aquila taught and corrected Apollos because he got it right and he had a huge impact in Corinth, so much so that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul could say, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. What a great little team ministry. They're all in it together. And whatever happens, we plant and water, but God does the growing. It's important we realise that doesn't matter how good you are as a farmer, how clever you are about where you put the seeds and how well you care for it and what the soil's like. It's God who's doing the growing. Anyway, Paul now goes back to Ephesus. He meets some believers there. And when he spoke to them, he realized that they'd got the baptism of John the Baptist, but hadn't been baptized under Jesus. Now, this is just like something else that happened in the book of Acts a little while ago. Remember when the gospel went out, to a place called Samaria. And when they went there, there was a bunch of people who said, oh, we've been baptised under John. Oh, great. Hang on a second, you've got to know about Jesus. And then they baptised them in the name of Jesus and then the Holy Spirit came down and there was prophesying and there were tongues and all sorts of weird sort of stuff like that. Is that going to happen here? Well, have a look, verse 5. As soon as they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. Basically, these guys were Old Testament believers because they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. And just like, I mean, they were a bit slow up there, but it took a while to get the message up there. Exactly what happened in chapter 2 of the book of Acts on the step of the temple with, with Pentecost and later happened in Judea and Samaria and over in Caesarea, this same thing happened yet again. This doesn't happen today. Why? Because we don't have New Testament apostles to lay hands on us. And what's more, we're not believers in the Old Testament category. We're all in the New Testament age. We get the Holy Spirit 
as soon as we believe in Jesus. So we don't have to have this thing here. This is unusual. It's weird and it's not to be repeated. See, some full-on devoted Pentecostal Christians will say that this is the sort of thing that we should expect to this day, that you become a follower of Jesus and then you come along to church and they say, hey, do you want to receive a second blessing? Do you want to be baptised in the Holy Spirit? And then people say, yeah, bring it on. And so then they have a special laying on of hands and they say that they speak in tongues and all these sorts of things happen and they have a Pentecostal experience. Well, I think they're well-meaning, but I don't think that's what they're supposed to do because this is a one-off special event. It happened in a special time, in a special place, because of the state of the gospel as it went out. You see, when we trust in Jesus, we get everything at once. It all happens at once. You receive Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit, and so you can know Christ and approach the Father in boldness. Everything happens at once. Well, now Paul arrives in Ephesus, and of course he goes first to the Jews, verse 8. We read that Paul went to the synagogue, preached boldly for the next three months. That's quite a while, isn't it? Arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. The the Ephesians we heard earlier on kind of liked what he had to say. So he was there for three months. It's a fair way. And what did he do? He preached boldly and argued persuasively. He didn't just preach boldly, no. He argued persuasively. See, when I talk to you about Jesus stuff, I'm not just saying here's some facts for you to know. It's not like it's a theological trivia quiz where you've got to learn the facts like you're getting your driver's license and passing a knowledge test. This is life and death. Paul preached powerfully, but he persuaded. See, we don't just preach, we persuade. That's why I say week in, week out, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you've got to be. The warning's there, as clear as day. You've got to do it, be rescued, be saved. And I'm just doing what Paul did and what many others have done since then. And he did it for three months until he was kicked out of the synagogue eventually and he moved to a lecture hall. And we read in verse 10 that this went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. It seems likely that because of the way that the working day worked in the first century around Asia, that they would work for four hours, then they'd have about four hours off, and then they'd come back and work for another four hours. And so Paul was actually using the middle four-hour gap around the heat of the day to do all his lecturing. And he would do that six days a week except for the Sabbath, And he did it, we read, for two years. So that's a heck of a lot of Bible teaching that he was teaching. This is what he was doing. And many people throughout the whole area of what's basically today western parts of Turkey, all of that area, heard the word of the Lord. Wonderful stuff. It was an extraordinary outcome. But that wasn't the only extraordinary thing. What did we know about Ephesus? Super spiritual, well, spiritualistic. Lots of weird sort of spiro sort of stuff. And so we see some weird sort of stuff happening as well, even with Paul's ministry. Verse 11 and 12, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases. 
and evil spirits were expelled. Whoa. As they say on the TV, don't try this at home. This is not normal stuff. And in fact, if somebody says to you, hey, if you buy my special hanky, then you're going to be cured of your diseases. If you, if you see that on TV at 2 a.m. in the morning, change the channel. You know, Go and buy a free set of steak knives or something. Don't get into that stuff. Because this was an unusual, you see, Luke describes it, unusual miracles. It was an unusual time. And all these miracles were doing is basically confirming Paul's ministry. Unusual miracles confirmed Paul's ministry. And other weird things happened as well in the city of Ephesus. We read in verse 13 that a group of Jews was traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantations, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. It's interesting, isn't it? They kind of grab the sort of power of Paul, which is the power of Jesus, to do these miracles, even though they are Jews. It's interesting, and you'd think it wouldn't work, but it was, and it had a bit of an interesting outcome. Because verse 15, we see, but at one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, hang on, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. (laughs) It's like, that teaches you to meddle with the power of Jesus if you don't know him. It's unusual. I haven't had too many situations where that has happened. I suspect you haven't either. Love to hear over morning tea if you have. But the thing with all of this is, Jesus has won the fight with evil. When you see this spooky, weird stuff, don't tremble in your boots. Don't wake up in the morning thinking, well, there's this constant battle between Jesus and the devil. I wonder who's going to win today. Man, old news, Jesus won. Sorry, spoiler alert. Don't worry about it. Jesus is the winner man, okay? Sorted. He has won the fight with evil, even though the evil spirits will try and make a bit of noise along the way. And this was impressive. God used this weird situation. We read in verse 17 that the story of what happened spread quickly all throughout Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honoured. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. Even though it was a place full of spiritual weird stuff all the time, they recognised a special power that was different. They realised the power of Jesus was a true power, was a strong power that even the devils recognized and submitted to. People recognized it, feared the Lord, and people confessed their sinful practices and became believers. Wonderful lives were turned around. They didn't just say that they became followers of Jesus. They made big and costly changes, really costly changes, changes to the very core of their lives. Have a read of this, verse 19. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Can you see the effect that it had on all these people? They'd invested millions of dollars in their magic books. 
I reckon I would have been tempted to say, well, let's just see how this Jesus thing works out. We'll just stick them in a shipping container somewhere later on, lock them up and wait and see what happens. And then maybe if it doesn't work, this Jesus thing, we can pull them out and go back to our plan B. No plan B. Burn them. Millions of dollars of investment, gone. When they realised that they needed to turn from their evil ways, they got rid of their evil ways. They destroyed their past when they followed Christ. They destroyed it. I, I praise God for these sorcerers that they really did understand what it meant to follow Jesus. They really did turn from their old ways. I don't think we see as much of that happening today. So generally speaking, you can convert to Christ in Australia and sort of keep a fairly similar lifestyle. See, if one of the mums or dads of a of the scripture kids next door at Jamboree Public School comes to know Jesus Christ and be saved, uh, it will change them. But it won't necessarily be such a massive, dramatic, dramatic conversion. But there are some for whom it will be the case. Someone who is in the sex trade or in organised crime or in a same-sex marriage or maybe a religious leader of a completely different faith or maybe a Muslim in an Islamic country. Mandy and I met some people in an Islamic country last year who had turned from Christ, and it was at great cost to them. We see that in Australia as well. It'd be very costly to convert to Christ in that situation. Why would they bother? It's not worth it just to have this sort of upgrade to their life, this slap on a bit of a Christian sticker. It does Clearly it changed their life. They met Jesus and they knew the past had to go. And it meant burning every possession. And it was worth it. Well, we're almost out of time. There's one more biff that happens, and I'll briefly mention it to you. The last half of chapter 19 has a fair bit of detail between a a conflict between Paul and the silversmiths who made their famous statues there in Ephesus, the statues of Artemis. Uh, The problem for them was that as Christianity grew, paganism shrunk. And if you make money out of paganism, your business is going to shrink and that's going to hit your pocket. And so the leaders of the silversmith union took action. Verse 25, the leader called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you've seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. He's got to be stopped. He's doing it everywhere. He's harming our reputation and the religious of Artemis. But ultimately, he's harming our hip pocket. And they turn into a massive riot. And they rioted and rioted for hours and hours. And it only stopped when the mayor quietened them down and said some words to them. He says in verse 38, fast forwarding, he says, If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. 
Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I'm afraid we're in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there's no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. This important official says, you've got no case to be made against Paul. So get out of here and settle down or we'll all get in trouble for this huge riot. Again, they confirm Christianity in Rome is legal. It is a legal religion. And that's where we end today. We've covered five years in half an hour. And Paul has preached for two years in Corinth and three years in Ephesus. It's been a long-term project of preaching and persuading people. And what seemed impossible has been possible with God. And how did he do it? With his powerful word. Corinth, the proud hub of immorality, has seen many people repent of their sins and turn to follow Jesus. And Ephesus, this city of new age spirituality, has seen many people repent of their past lives and follow Jesus, just like they did in Athens. I think this should warm our hearts as we think about Sydney and the Illawarra and Chamberoo. Because it might seem impossible. It might seem that because of the immorality of our land, or because of the philosophy of our land, or even of the economics of our land, that people don't want to hear us. But when we preach and speak the powerful word of God with persuasion, we know that's where the power is. Because God's powerful word will keep bringing people to Christ. Don't give up. And as you are sitting here hearing the powerful word of God, you yourselves are being hit by the Holy Spirit. God's powerful word will keep bringing people to Christ. And when we feel afraid, like Paul was, with fear and trembling, remember these words that the Lord Jesus said to Paul. He said, I am with you. And no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the joy it is to have this assurance that you are powerful and your word does wonders. We thank you that in this land that seems turned away from Jesus, that your word is working. Please give us boldness to be natural Christians, to bring people to church to hear about this, to talk about stuff. But above all, Lord, help us to be ones who have heard the word of God and not just consented to it, but actually have converted to it in as bigger and bolder way as necessary. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.